Well, hey, everybody, this is Blaine checking back in for another episode of Appalachian Pie, coming to you from our virtual studios out in the Ethernet somewhere. Tonight, I get the opportunity to allow you to listen to a conversation that I had with pretty much a very dynamic personality, a transitional figure for a lot of people, and someone who who I truly look up to and I truly hope you take the words that he shares. Everything that this man is trying to do is to help everyone. And if if that message can spread, hey, I think we're doing something good, pirates. So please, everyone meet Dr. Dula. Dula, meet everyone else. And you know, thank you so much for being willing to join me today, and I, I just want to let everyone hear what you have to say, dude. Well, hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to meet you all. Uh, I have to, it's a very nice introduction you gave me there. Uh, very generous and kind, and I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, I'm uh, Chris Dula. I am a professor of psychology at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, I hail from Charlotte, North Carolina. Again, born there in 1969. Uh, so it was an urban setting. Was, when I was born, what they might have called a big little town. Since then, it has grown substantially. And uh, certainly growing up in the city, I, I was a uh, little familiar with the, the uh, Appalachian culture, although I've always been interested in culture in general. And I did have a step-grandfather uh, who had an apple orchard and a farm. And so every year I would wind up and... Central Virginia. Oh, wow. Jose, Virginia. And uh, and I, I kind of just enjoyed that time in, in the country, uh, which was very different from my time in the city, but I never had any plans to move uh, into this region other than my job brought me to Johnson City, Tennessee in 2004, and being interested in culture in general, I've learned quite a bit about Appalachian culture, Celtic as well, uh, the roots of Appalachian culture, and uh, I have embraced it. Very nice, and I know you've been active too in some other things that I'm wanting to touch on, just even with acting and music and all of that, but growing up in Charlotte, what, what was that like? Because... And correct me if I'm wrong, or if you're not necessarily want to get into it, but you kind of started out well, and then ended up getting yourself into, well, for all practical purposes, I believe you described it as a teenage drunk. Um, how did all that yeah. culminate? Well, you know, it's it's one of those things that you, you can't really know what you're in when you're in it until you get some perspective by growing up and getting some age and hopefully some wisdom. But, you know, my, my family was, was not rich, but they were well off. So I, I grew up in a protected setting where I, I was not abused. I was not neglected. I had everything I could want in terms of, want for in terms of just material uh, needs were met. And, uh, and so... In that regard, I would say I was privileged in ways that I did not even really appreciate or couldn't have been aware of as a child. Uh, but then about age 13, I became an alcoholic. And as such, uh, I also was a juvenile delinquent in general. I became a rebel without a clue, as I say, uh, you know, just to borrow another phrase. But I rebelled against authority or anything that smacked of status quo. And I didn't really have a reason to do that other than I just tended to go my own way pretty strongly. Uh, I got very involved with uh, the uh, metal music subculture with my best friends, and uh, I was never a particularly great musician, but they were amazing. And so I, I wound up hanging out uh, with all kinds of musicians, and then as I moved into adulthood, I, I moved out with my best friend who was a bass player. I was a guitarist and, uh, you know, we split, split the rent. And, uh, but then at that point I became a full blown 
alcoholic because I had the freedom to drink every single night, and I did to the point of just, you know, blacking out or passing out. I, I'm very lucky I did not hurt anybody uh, with my own risky behavior, uh, nor myself. Uh, but eventually, um, I, I found myself with a daughter, stepdaughter first, who had lived a pretty, um, uh, I guess, uh, no, actually, a, a pretty rough life. And in, in that sense, that she was moved around 26 times by the time she was 10 years old oh, by wow. a, a mother who also had some very serious uh, alcohol problems. So I, you know, at the time when we got together, both of us had alcohol problems. But then uh, there was the threat that she was going to leave with this child. And something inside me was very paternal that I did not know I had. And I just needed to be the stable force of good for this child to be a good role model. And I quit drinking and that was over 25 years ago. And then I, I got focused on school and being a good role model and everything changed. And I credit my adopted daughter now, uh, Nikki with saving my life and giving me purpose and direction. Wow. And honestly, I, you, you kind of surprised me with saying that that was also something that your wife had struggled with as well. And just, 26 moves and all that, especially for such a young child. I, I can only imagine, like, not only what her perspective was, but now what her perspective is that you all have created a very solid grounding and a great life for her from well, an outsider look. Yeah, in. well, yeah, well from, from a real perspective now, uh, that was my second wife, and we got divorced some time ago. She is now deceased. Oh, wow. Uh, as a result of, yeah, as a result of the of the battle with addiction that she never, that she never won. I beat my battle with addiction. I, I stopped drinking and I never looked back and I, and I got not only cleaned up in terms of sobriety, but I got focused and found myself a positive purpose in life right. where I had none to begin with. I then had not only a child to raise, but then we had another child. Uh, you know, I had the adopted daughter and then I had her half brother, my son, Dalen. And so I had a, a teenage daughter and an infant son going to graduate school, working jobs on the side. And I just put everything I had into becoming a different person. And for three decades, that is about what I've been focused on is becoming a better person every day. Right. And actually I, I do apologize for not realizing that that was a second wife because I obviously, oh, well, there, there's no, no need to apologize. So, yeah. No, no need to apologize. My life's been fairly complicated. That's why I wrote a book. Exactly. Uh, people have told me for years that I have lived a life that would be worthy of, uh, you know, putting into book format. And I always kind of just took that tongue in cheek, like, yeah, okay, whatever. But one day I, I found myself faced with, you know, well, maybe I should, because maybe there's some, maybe there's some cautionary tale in there of, uh, you know, making a, a mess of your life. And, and yet at the same time, some inspiration that no matter how bad you mess it up, you can always straighten it out. If you want to put your nose to the grindstone, find that light inside yourself and, and turn on a positive factor, you could do it. Right. And actually, the book is definitely something that I want us to be able to talk about here in a little bit. But there, there's something else that you do now. Well, as a professor, first of all, I guess we should touch on that. So you ended up going to school and really turning your life around when you realized what yes, was sir. going on. And you just went for it. There was no stopping you to be able to get through school and becoming a psychology professor. What, what was that struggle like just when you finally break the well, tie? It was interesting because, like, as, as a drunk and a ne'er-do-well, which is about the only way to describe me, at the time when I was in my late teens and early 20s, most people who knew me then thought I'd never amount to anything other than maybe I might wind up in jail or be dead. I wasn't, I wasn't a thug-like person. I was never out to hurt other people or to take things from other people. I just had no care for myself and no real understanding of the risk I put myself in or others with my constant drunken behavior. And obnoxious was the, is probably the mildest way to describe me. Um, any event, I, I was a construction worker because nobody in construction cared that you had long hair. They didn't care what you dressed like. They didn't care what you smelled like. They just cared that you showed up and did your job. And I always did show up and I did a fabulous job no matter what I did, except that I really hated construction. I really hated it. Now, the people who taught me those trades, and I, I 
hung sheetrock. I did metal stud framing. I did carpentry. I framed houses, did boxing, and I did a lot of laying of floors, uh, vinyl, sheet vinyl, and block tile, ceramic, et cetera. The people who taught me those trades were artisans. They had passion for their craft. I shared none of that passion. I just did it because it provided me enough money to make my rent and my bills and got me drunk. You know, you honestly make a really and good... That's all I, and, that, and that's all I needed. Yeah, you make a really good point right there because it's something that I've said to people many times before is lots of people think that people in the trades or whatever are literally just doing a job. They're just cutting stuff and piecing it together and all that. But to me, it's an art. Same thing as somebody who it restores is. the body on a car after an accident or anything like that. Absolutely. But, yeah. Oh, when it's done well, I mean, the way I put it is, Skilled labor, no matter how skilled, is still labor. But at the same time, the skill part of it, there are things that can be done only by people who have dedicated themselves to learning a particular trade. That you, you know, you, the nowadays you can look at YouTube and other kinds of do-it-yourself uh, outlets and figure out how to do some things yourself. But there are people who devote years and years to being apprentices and then becoming masters of their trade. And they are artisans. Exactly. I mean, everyone dealing with masonry, construction, um, electrical wiring, my gosh, plumbing, anything like that. Those people truly have invested a lot of their own time to be able to do that and have such a broad knowledge of it to be able to attack basically anything that's thrown at them. Absolutely. And and to me, it it was was the thing is, not only was it just physically exhausting but additionally um not having a passion for it it was one of those things that uh i just had no idea i I would have loved to have been a musician for a life but i was not going to be able to do that because hey i'm just not that good i don't i'm not putting myself down i just i'm not at the top of the talent pile i was not at the top of the drive pile you know i just i I didn't have the the that something special that was ever going to make me able to make a living as an artist, but I was never going to stop playing music and never stop writing poetry and lyrics and, and stories. Uh, I just wasn't going to be something I could make a living at. So I, I wound up in community college basically out of sheer desperation, not knowing what else I could possibly do. My dad and my mom convinced me to give it a shot. In the Charlotte thought, area? Why, why would I? Yes, sir. Central Piedmont Community College is where I started okay. in 1992. And I just figured if I hated it, I'd quit. But you know what? I loved it because I've always enjoyed learning. I just hated the arbitrary control in junior high school and high school that were exerted by by teachers and authority figures because I was a rebel, so to speak. And so, you know, it was just completely different. Nobody in community college or university tells you what to do. They say, here's the syllabus. Here's what you need to learn. Do it or don't do it. You don't do it. You just you wasted your money and your time. But I was, uh, you know, in my early mid twenties when I started, and I was just figuring if I'm going to spend the time, the money, and the effort, I'm going to get an A. And I got a three nine two five GPA in my community college, and got my associate's degree, and transferred out to the local university, UNC Charlotte, and I got a bachelor of arts and philosophy, and also a bachelor of science in psychology, and learned the hard way that you know that's not going to be enough to get a job that pays well. You need a master's degree and a license if you want to be a therapist, and, and I got into Appalachian State University and got my master's in clinical psych with a 4.0 GPA, and again, I had a wife, two kids, a GA, 20 hours a week, and then a side jobs doing whatever I could to make a little extra money on the side, and then ultimately realized that I could probably go further and wound up getting my doctorate at Virginia Tech in clinical psychology. I did a one-year postdoctoral fellowship in research at University of Memphis and landed this job at East Tennessee State University in 2004 and have been here ever since. Wow. Man, that's quite a ride. It was a wild ride. And hence, you know, there was this book that I wrote, and I just thought, you know, I finally achieved what I would consider the pinnacle of success in, in my career, which is what I've always been after. I'm self-competitive. I just work as hard as I can work to do as well as I can. And achieving the designation of full professor is the highest designation you can achieve in your field as a as a academic. And so I got that. And then the question is, like, are you going to write this book ever or are you not? Right. Because now's the time. And if you're going to do it, do it. 
And actually, and I did it while you were doing that and everything too. Though you you've also been a very active part of the community around Johnson. Yes, City sir. And everything. Absolutely. You do a lot of work with charities. You well, heck, yes, in all sir. honesty, you help me out being a musician with a show that we're still trying to develop. It it got sidetracked. Yes, while sir. We were having to fix the condo to get ready to sell. <laughs> Jacob but, Jones and me uh, wrote you a theme song. Yeah, Appalachia. And I'm I'm kind of curious though, what kind of things draw you to do the the charity work? And just you've got an extremely positive attitude, and it comes across so clearly. Well, the positive attitude is something I've had to work hard on for, again, almost three decades. I, I was a negative person in general in my early, mid-20s, and, and having that child come into my life and then getting another child and then getting focused on, on this education thing and what can I do for a career, uh, ever since that that kind of pivotal change in my life, I really worked hard to become a better person. And it's it's been now something that's foundationally changed who I am. So that now that I have a good job that I love, where I get to help people change their lives for the better, you know, that, that, that pays me well. And I have been invested in this community completely. And as a musician, I've always, you know, intended to play, wanted to play. And when I finally got a job and had my nights and weekends back, because you don't have that when you're raising kids in grad school and working on the side. Right. When I finally got an actual career, I just started playing a little bit of music by myself initially at a coffee house, acoustic coffee house down here on Walnut Street in John City. And then I had a colleague who played bass, Steve Marshall. And so he and I started playing together. And he had a good buddy, Stephen Reese, and he played drums. So we just started forming this little you know, free-form band jamming because we loved to play music. And uh, it wasn't called Chris Dool and Friends originally. It was called Dula Marshall and Reese. And so what we found is that um, there were a lot of charities that would ha have these events, and they needed or wanted, you know, a musical aspect to it, but couldn't really afford that. And you know, if you're if you're trying to raise money for a charity, the last thing you want to do is drop two, three, four, five hundred dollars on a band. So what we wound up doing was we would play for free for charity events, and that's we have three rules. One is we never take money to play. Now, all other bands should be paid, but we're all blessed to have good day jobs. We can, we can buy our cables, our cords, our amps, and, and gas money to, around the Tri-Cities. So we just have the ability, and, and as it happened, that we kind of opened it up, at, and almost anybody who wanted to would eventually come play. And now we got a bench of about 25 musicians. And it's called Chris Doolin and Friends, and rule number one is we don't take money to play. If, if we're available, we play for whatever event needs us. And we provide an atmosphere of fun. Uh, rule number two is we never practice because we're not a band. The only person I can guarantee you is going to show up is me. <laughs> because there's no band, there's no obligation. So if somebody says they're going to play with us on you know, a particular date, and I'll sometimes get a call that day and say, oh, I can't make it. I'm so sorry. I'm like, no need to be sorry. There is no obligation. We're, we're just here to have a good time and to, and to provide an atmosphere that other people can have a good time in and hopefully raise some awareness for some really worthy causes. And our last rule, we don't like rules too much, so we keep them down to three. So rule number one, we never take money to play. Right. Rule number two, we never practice because we're not technically a band. It's just me and a deep bench of good, good people who are great musicians, any of whom are willing to play for free if they're available. And the last rule is we must have fun. And what I found is no matter what we do or how we play, if we're having a good time, People who come to these events also have a good time. And that means that it's a positive experience for the organization that's hosting the event and it raises awareness. Sometimes it raises funds. And at all times, it's something that's worth our time. And so I've been very much plugged into this community for a long time and very much a part of the, of the charity organizational network that aims to serve this region and improve the quality of life for the people who live here. Indeed, and honestly, that, that's also a really good point to bring up, too, because the depth of your troop that you've created, you say it's 25 members strong. One of them is actually someone that you had a lot of influence over, and, I mean, please, Dalen, to me, is phenomenal. I love hearing him. Yeah, he's something. That's my son, Dalen Dula. He's a guitarist, and he's also a drummer. He's also a singer. 
He has his own band called Dula, and we we do need to kind of keep it separate. When I play Chris Dula and Friends, I spell my name differently, and that was a K R Y S S D U L A. So I, I have an alternate first name spelling that I made up in eleventh grade. Just I think I was just daydreaming, killing time in English <laughs> class, and came up with this alternate K R Y S S. But then it helps me make some distinction between the wild man who plays for fun and and yeah i I do get pretty crazy because i enjoy myself playing music Uh, but that is a very different persona than the professional who works at etsu who is a licensed clinical psychologist an adjunct faculty member in the department of family medicine a full professor etc etc that person who is a professional is a consummate professional and i don't want people to the degree that i'm able to control any perception which is to say not much (laughs) to confuse the two that they they are both me obviously uh but they are both parts of me that have different parts to play in my life and so i my son obviously being galen dua has every right to use the last name his band is called dua d-u-l-a and they are an 80s metal outfit he is 21 and he was raised listening to 80s metal because that's what i listen to and that is my primary genre of, of choice when i'm listening to music you know, everything from, you know, old school Black Sabbath and Rush through Dokken and Rat and Iron Maiden, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what he grew up listening to, and that's what he plays. And there are very few people who are not my age who play that genre, and he plays it with the uh, dedication that that it really requires, I think, to say that you have an art form that is distinct. Yeah. And I would have to agree. And actually, just to get back um, to what you said, too, about the professionalism and everything else with ETSU, you, you're a very popular professor. I mean, is there something about the way that you approach your teaching, or is it just Absolutely. because everybody knows you, or what? No, the, the, there is, it is definitively because of my approach. Now, as a teacher, there, there are a lot of great teachers here. But what I have done is I have cultivated in my own approach to teaching and a, 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 I guess a strategy of realizing what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I'm here to help people get knowledge that helped me change my life. And to do that, they're going to have to figure out why that's relevant to them personally. But to do that also, they're going to have to you know, really uh, find some kind of joy and coming to my class. It can't be tedious. It can't be boring. And and the way that I, I looked at it is I went through undergraduate. I went to graduate school, and I had some terrible teachers, and I had some great ones. And so what I did is I cultivated in my own approach an emulation of the best of the best teachers that I ever had. So I, I picked up techniques and strategies that I thought were good for me. And I, of course, avoided like the plague anything that I thought was disrespectful or um, that was, you know, ineffective. And so what I have done over the years and taking lots of data and feedback and honing my approach over time is I have created a package, if you will, of introductory psychology that went from an original class of about 180 people to now the class is 320 people strong every fall and every spring. And so I sell out 320 seats because what I do is deliver a package of material in a context that people find not only enjoyable, but informative and sometimes transformational. And it is infectious, but it isn't because it's you know me per se. It's because that I have consciously developed a, an approach to teaching that people resonate with. Well, but, you know, you're being a little bit too humble there because your personality alone also magnifies that. Well, you know, that's the thing about being the front man. So back when I was a 16-year-old, I wasn't a good singer by any stretch of the imagination. But I was willing to stand in front of anybody with a microphone and rule the stage because uh, I always had that kind of outgun personality, and that served me well in a lecture format. So, yeah, if I'm on stage in front of 320 people, whether it's playing with a guitar or teaching introductory psychology, I have that feel uh, of, like, this is important, and we're going to do this, and we're going to have fun and kick ass. And I guess that actually kind of really brings me to the point where, since we got to touch on everything with ETSU and 
just your background with music, the the childhood, and all that. Back to the book. So you decided to yes, write sir. this book. You finally put it together, and I did. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's self published, and it is, and that's an interesting aspect to it. And then after it came out, I guess you could say something really life changing happened to you. Yeah. Life threatening. Um, do you mind telling the story about that? Ha- happy to do it. No problem at all. But you know, here's the thing. So I wrote the book, and it was self-published because you know, no, nobody's going to give a book contract to an unpublished author just because he happens to be fairly well-known in an area where he's been teaching for 13 years. So I, I wrote this book, and as such, you know, I had to pay three grand to a company to get it published. And what that three grand did for me was they were going to put it onto – uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and get it converted into Kindle and Nook. And I did, I had no idea how to do that. And they were going to create a website. Basically, that's what I'm paying them for. And I, I had took me a couple summers of extra teaching on the side to pay for that. Um, and then it turns out they take almost all the royalties as well. And they also, because it was a memoir, uh, were very deathly afraid of being sued. Apparently, that's the way they just look at things. Is anybody, you know, of course, I changed all the names in the book. There's a lot of unsavory behavior described of both myself and others. And so I wasn't going to identify anybody in any way, shape, or form in the book. Um, but my, these are all my friends, people I you know, <laughs> grew up with and considered to be very close to. And they're not going to sue me, but the company doesn't care. So they would not use not only not let me use my name, but they wouldn't let me use my likeness. So all these people that I've, you know, been connected with on Facebook and social media all these years, who are almost exclusively students that have connected with me through ETSU, I'm like, how am I supposed to market a book if I can't even use my own name as the author? But that's the way it went down. It's like, do you want to publish or not? If you do, then you're going to have to change your name. So Stephen Sage is the name I used. Steven is my middle name, uh, S-T-E-V-E-N, my, my actual middle name is D-H-E-N. But Sage, I, I started this book in 1998 when I was in my master's program in clinical psych at Appalachian State. But I got about 60 pages into this thing, and I just had no time. Again, I had a, a, a very conflictual relationship with a woman who was the mother of my two children uh, who had not been able to put away her own addictions at the same time going to school graduate school full-time and working on the side. Like, there's no way I had time to write this thing. But I did come up with that little pen name back then because I kind of realized then, I suppose, that you know, if you're going to write something this personal and it's going to involve all these other people, you're going to have to be very careful to protect everybody's identity. But then they wouldn't let me use my, my image either, so um, I just decided, okay, go for it. Let's, let's go ahead and put this thing out there and see what happens. And like with my music mission, um, I always envisioned it being a charity project as well. So I figured if I could make my money back, great. If I had made my money back, yeah, if I made the three grand I put into it back, then anything else I made past that, I'd give at least 50% to charity. But at this point, I don't even need that back. I mean, I've absorbed that. I, so my, my mission now is, you know, is to just whatever money I get, that might be very little. And it, if we can get to a national platform, which is fine if we do it, fine if we don't, maybe, maybe we'll make more, but after taxes are deducted, because my wife being, you know, a banker, she's like, hey, you can't just give away all the money. We're going to owe taxes on that <laughs> it's income. You know, I'm like, no, no, you got a point. Uh, so I, uh, whatever check we get ever for royalties, I'll just hand it to her and say, what do we need to hold back? And we'll hold back what we got to hold back to pay our taxes on April 15th. But of whatever is left, I have pledged very seriously to give 75% to charities of my choice, because I am very aware of many local charities and national charities that are not only worthy causes, but are also good stewards of, of donation money. And so that's my pledge. They're like, you know, this is money I would not have had otherwise. And if, and, and what happened, of course, that you alluded to is I, I found out I had brain cancer. And in so doing, I wound up with two emergency brain surgeries. One was a biopsy, whoa, 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 uh, which obviously whoa, had to be done. Whoa. How how do you just find out that you have brain cancer? Well, okay, the, well it was a it was a critical incident I should say there that you occurred go. <laughs> where I was I was with I was with my uh, five year old niece that I call Lala and Lala is me and Denise this is Denise's sister's daughter she's five years old we, we, Denise and I treat Denise is my wife uh, treat Lala kind of like a surrogate grandbaby 
Like, we were there the day she was born. So I've done Lala her whole life, and she comes over. She was coming over about once a week, and, and that was good because, you know, we, we would hang out with her, and I would take her down to the Hands-On Museum here in Johnson City. I'd take her to the, the trampoline park. I'd take her to the animal shelter so we could see the, the kitties. And, and so we, we just helped. We, you know, we, Denise and Lala and I would just hang out, but I'm always teaching this child always having fun with this child. Anyway, we're at the Hands-On Museum one day, and all of a sudden I lose clarity of vision entirely in my lower left visual field. Oh, wow. Now, I could still see kind of a blob-like, like I could still see colors and, and shape, but no detail. Now, being that I have a PhD in psychology and have been teaching basic neuroanatomy for 15, 20 years almost, um, I know that this does not just occur. You don't just lose part of your visual field. But what was interesting is the upper left visual field was still intact, and so was the right visual field, and so was all of my other thinking abilities. And the first thing that occurred to me is I might be having a stroke. And so at that moment, you know, they, they say if you're having a stroke, every second counts, and they are not kidding. Because you only get as many brain cells as you got when you're born. You don't get any more, and if they die, they're gone. And so you've got to get to medical attention quick. So there I am with this five-year-old wonderful child, and I say to her, Lala, you think you can walk with me down to Denise's office? Now, Denise's office is literally like a block away from the museum. She and I have walked this road many times. This kid is very, very intelligent, very adaptive. And she's like, yeah, okay, we need to go see Denise real quick. So on our way out the door, I don't want to scare her. Obviously, I can't drive. If I had to, I could have called Denise and she'd have walked up. But well, I was going to say, I mean, that, that, that does show a certain amount of thought process that obviously ran through your mind, too, just to be able to Oh, absolutely. Well, my only, job is, my only job is to keep this child safe, right? So if we, if I, there's no way I'm going to put her in danger. So I just asked her, can you walk with me down to Denise's office? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, all right. And on our way out, she's like, can we look at the kaleidoscope? I'm like, yes, we can, baby. So we pop in a little mirror kaleidoscope, look for a second. I'm like, okay, I really need to go see Denise. And she's like, okay. And we walk to the first and only intersection. And I always do traffic safety and pedestrian safety with this child. We stop. She looks left. She looks right. She looks left again. And now, again, I can see her in my right visual field. Mm-hmm. And I'm very close at hand. And, and she's like, oh, we can cross. I'm like, let's hold hands. And we pop across safely through the crosswalk. And I'm like, now, there are a lot of doors down there where Denise's office is because her office is in a hallway. I'm like, do you remember which one it is? She's like, yeah. And so we, we went down there, and we went straight to Denise's office, and I said, Denise, I don't want to scare you, but I need to get to medical attention now. And so that's what we did. And Denise, yeah, so Lala was my first hero. She got me to Denise. We, we, went, we went together, obviously. Uh, and then Denise got me ultimately to John City Medical Center where I then had a full-blown seizure. And as such, they then did the, the scanning, MRI and CT, where they found the brain tumor. And then they did a biopsy of the brain tumor, which is a small tumor, but the, they let me go two days later thinking there had been no bleeding. But as it turned out, there had been bleeding. And the day after I got home, I woke up with the worst headache of my life. And it turned out that I had a pretty sizable blood clot that had formed in my brain. And I then had another full-blown seizure, traumatized my wife again. She got me back to the ER again, and they cut a section of my skull out, and they took out a large blood clot, which meant they also took out brain cells by default. Nobody did anything wrong. This is just what happened. Right. You know, it was it's just the way it broke down was I had two emergency brain surgeries, wound up spending another week in the hospital, and by the time I got out, I just couldn't even hardly think or, or focus on anything. And, and that's where this whole, you know, get do on Ellen thing came from. And it was kind of weird because it was never intended. Uh, when the first time I went into the hospital, I was supposed to have done an orientation talk at ETSU. And I have never missed anything professional ever. And when I did not show up, the people who run the orientation there got scared and thought I might have crashed my car. Because, like, this, this is not like Dula. Dual doesn't just not show. So they called my phone, and I was unconscious in the hospital. My wife answered and told them, I'm in the, and Chris is in the hospital. He's not going to be able to make it. They then told my replacement speaker, who then made an announcement to the entire Culp Auditorium, which was between oh 500 gosh. and 1,000 people. Yeah, just basically something I'm sure benevolent, like you know, Dr. Dual is in the hospital, right. say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, wishing the best or whatever. But what happened was, 
you know, by the time I got out of the hospital two days later and couldn't hardly think, I had so many Facebook messages and emails that I couldn't, I was overwhelmed. I mean, both by the fact that so many people seem to care about my well-being, but the, there is question after question after question. What's going on? What's wrong? What's happening? And I had no idea. I couldn't read all those emails, much less respond to them. And so I'm like, how can I let people know what's going on in a way that's more efficient for me? And I thought, I'll just do a Facebook Live video. And my best friend's like, man, this would be a great story for Ellen DeGeneres show. I'm like, I, I guess it would be. And so I just did a Facebook Live video, which has now been viewed over 70,000 times. Um, and it was basically me just telling people what I just told you. And actually, like, this if, is what happened, and this is what I, I... Interjecting here for just a second. Because of those yeah. videos and the fact that you've continued doing them to some degree over the yeah, course I'm of your Yeah, I'm trying to keep up a, kind of a blog. But you, you, can, you can honestly kind of see through your own documentation how you've been getting better because you were so confused and having such a rough yeah. time at first. I mean, it broke my heart. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had, I had to write myself a script. I, 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 let's just say that you and I have a great discussion right now. and I don't have to have a script for this. I'm a talker, <laughs> but I was so confused and so unsure of my own ability to stay focused that I went ahead and wrote a script and read it off my computer monitor while I ran the uh, Facebook Live video so that I would make sure that I said everything I needed to say and not lose focus. And yes, since then, I've been home over a month. In fact, uh, tomorrow will be my 18th day of cancer treatment where I've gone, you know, I'll put out <laughs> an update on Saturday. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've been doing radiation, well, photon therapy. They've been targeting my tumor every weekday. Um, for the last you know, 17 days, and then I've been taking chemotherapy pills every night. And uh, and even with those treatments being added, having been home over a month from the surgeries, I am most definitively getting better every day with my ability to think and stay focused. In fact, I've been working um, three half days a week because I love my job, and it makes me feel some sense of normality to be in my office it takes me a little bit longer to make sure I'm reading emails fully and properly, and maybe just a little bit longer to make sure my response is fully comprehensive. But in any event, I am actually getting to do what I love continually, and that's actually something my doctor recommended. And I have to take copious notes to make sure I don't forget details. So when you and I you know, made this appointment to talk tonight, uh, I, I wrote that down on three different calendars so that I just wouldn't goof up and forget wow so and my apologies for sidetracking you there i i just i just honestly i was a little bit concerned about our conversation because of the short amount of time since but you you honestly seem like you have come back together in a remarkably short part of time or part of time piece of time uh yeah yeah well you know I, I, I came up with my little hashtag that is blessed beyond measure. I have stuff going on that I have to recognize not everybody gets. And I I am just really fortunate in that regard. I have a fairly good prognosis. Not everybody has that. I have access to health care. Not everybody has that. I've got a wife who is utterly dedicated to making sure that Every medication I need is laid out for me all day, every day, making sure I get to every medical appointment, and there are a lot of them on time. I've just got so many people at my workplace who would be willing to do almost anything to make it just a little bit easier for me to operate at work, and not everybody has these things. And so, you know, I'm very cautious. I don't want people to think I'm like this kind of Pollyanna positive that I think everybody should see some silver lining no matter how negative. Uh, a, a serious issue they face, but what I do know as an educator is that no matter what serious health issue you face, and I got all these people following me on these social media platforms, I'm going to educate that optimism predicts, on average, better health outcomes. Indeed, you know, more social support predicts better health outcomes. More treatment compliance predicts better health outcomes, and not everybody knows that. More, but I do, and it's not—it's not my opinion. Yeah, it's not my opinion. 
this is the science from medical and psychological literature that shows time and again that the more of these things you can bring to bear, no matter what you're facing, there's no guarantee with the individual. You know, we can't guarantee we're going to have a particular outcome. But what we can do is, on average, improve the odds that those outcomes are better. So you, you took your friend's advice, though, and you've really started a campaign to get doula on Ellen. Let's just hashtag yes, it sir. right there. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, I, I kind of looked at that, and I said to, to him, I was like, yeah, I like Ellen, actually. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a daytime talk show watcher, but I've seen her on several occasions, but I really just like her approach to what she does. And at the same time, my thought process was if, I'm writing, if I've written this book and I'm selling this book, you know, and I sell more copies of this book, I get to give away more money. So if I can, you know, if I can take it to a, a national stage, if it doesn't have to be just Ellen, but in, in any way that I can publicize this, I'm going to sell more books than I would have. I wouldn't have expected to sell many books as a, you know, a pseudonym using unpublished author. But the fact that this brain cancer has just occurred and there's a compelling human interest story with it back uh, that I, yeah, the, the whole kind of semi-viral video thing uh, yeah if, if, if I can capitalize on that and keep it going to some degree and sell more books that just enables me to give away more money it also means more people will read my book and maybe take some kind of message away from that I'm, in fact, going to give a few copies of my book to some local uh, rehab facilities. Oh, because nice. uh, the way I look at it is, is, is you know, hey, if, if I can give up alcohol, because I was a mass, I wasn't just an occasional alcohol user, I was a massive alcoholic. If I could give it up and turn my life around, I, I, I could just imagine somebody kind of finding themselves in that space where they're, they've hit rock bottom and they're ready to give it that final shot and maybe just, encountering my book in a particular safe space, they could take that story to heart and go, you know what, if this guy can do that, I can do it too. Wow. So just getting back to all that then, I mean, where you said Amazon and Barnes & Noble are carrying it. Um, is there like a separate website for the book or what? There is. There is. A, the one, this is the one the self-publishing company put together. It's www dot experiments in life e x p e r i m e n t s i n l i f e book b o o k dot com. So experiments in life is is the main title of the book, and it's under the name Stephen Sage. So yeah, if you look up Dula, you're not going to find Dula. It's experiments in life by Stephen Sage. S t e v e n S-A-G-E, and you can easily find that on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or at the, at the link I just gave you. Uh, but the, the thing that's really gratifying to me is there are now at least 22 independent reviews on Amazon, and these are not pity reviews. I don't, I don't want anybody to say something that's not true. If you, don't, you don't have to like my book. But I wrote a book conversationally, one that, like we're talking now, that would explain my background and some of the crazy stuff I lived through. It should be a fun read. It should be somewhat inspirational, depending on your perspective. And uh, But you know, as a writer, you can't really know how people experience it. Just like as a musician, you write a song you love, and you hope other people like it, but you don't know if they do or not until you see the response. And in this case, the response is overwhelmingly positive. Of the 22 reviews, 21 of them are five-star, and the other one's a four-star. And again, I don't want people throwing out pity reviews going, oh, dude's a great guy. We love his book. If you don't like it, say you don't like it. But it turns out people see the, I mean, each one of these has at least a paragraph written about it where they, people are detailing what they find to be worthy of their time. I mean, it's $20 for a paperback copy. It is $30 for a hardback copy. It's $5 for an e-copy. And it's like, I don't want people spending money on something that's not good. And it turns out that it seems like most people who have read it actually enjoy the book. Right, you're connecting. Exactly. And that was the goal, but again, you can't really know if you do it until you get feedback. Very true. And the feedback that I've gotten so far has been all positive. Wow. Well, major kudos to you for all that. Um, I Thank know you. that I know that the time is starting to push where we were talking about 
how long we would be recording and all. It, yes, sir. Is there anything else that you would like to say to anybody, not only in Johnson City or whomever else, because the nature of it being a podcast is I get hits from all over Europe, Asia, this, that, and the other. Is there any message that you would like to get out there just to kind of encourage people to take that step and, you know, if you've got something to say, say it, but please be positive and let's help one another. Right. Well, that, I think you just summed it up. My, my life for quite a while now has been about not only helping myself become a better person, but doing what I can to help other people find positivity in their own lives and enhance that. Uh, not that I've ever done anything personally that changes somebody else's life. If anybody changes their own life, it's because they've taken the initiative. But that's something we can all do, and that's something I want to capitalize on and just work to make the world a better place. And I, I do my part in my corner, and my corner is the most beautiful place in the world. Johnson City, Tennessee, and the surrounding region, as you well know, is not only geographically gorgeous, but it's also filled with some of the most wonderful people you'll ever come across. And I'm just, I feel just blessed and lucky to be a part of this community. And I just want to stay a part of this community as long as I can. The prognosis for me, if we don't cure this thing, is, you know, I've got a few years, not many. But if we do cure this thing, I could be around for 50 plus years. Who knows? My goal is that if I live five years or 50, that I'm going to live every day with a greater sense of gratitude for what I get to do in this life and have done in this life. I'm going to live with a greater, sharper sense of purpose of doing that, that positive effort to make a better place for all of us, you know, and that I'm going to have a heightened sense of urgency that we only get so many days, use every one of them wisely and, and live every moment to the full carpe diem, but, not only sees the day, but sees it positively. And so that's what I want to do. And to the degree that other people find any, you know, um, I guess inspiration to that, then, then I feel honored that I might have had any influence on anybody else in a positive way. Oh, that's great, man. And is there any other things that you would like to throw out there just for people that may want to get in touch with you? Because you're a very personable individual online and everything. I mean, email, uh, Facebook, whatever. Well, that's the thing is Facebook has this weird arbitrary limit of 5,000 friends and I hit it a long time ago because like I said, I, I teach almost, a, I teach almost a thousand students a year, literally. So many of them have connected with me and to me, back in the old days when I played music in the late eighties, if you wanted somebody to know you were playing, you made a handwritten flyer. You went to the copy shop and had copies made and then you went down the street where the venue was that you were going to play and you literally stapled flyers to all the telephone poles, and you hoped somebody wandered by and cared enough to read the flyer and come to the show. You went to the music shops and hoped they'd put a flyer up in the window. So to my way of looking at it, Facebook and the social media platform to me has never been about me so much as connecting with others, and particularly students. Um, and that, that is just some history of, of how um, I came to realize that uh, effective marketing was something that just was very difficult to accomplish. And what I found in the way of Facebook and before that, MySpace, and, and the connection with all the students that I've been so privileged to teach over time is that Facebook is like the most enormous telephone pole I have ever seen in that I can post on one place information that might be of interest to any number of people, and they can not only see it, but it can be uh, updated and details can be changed as needed, and, and you can use high-quality graphics. It's a, it's a means to an end, and the end is to get information to people that I think they might find useful. Oh, that's beautiful, man. And honestly, one of the things that I would like to touch base with you on real quickly, if you don't mind, is I know our time is short, so what what kind of information would you be willing to throw out there for somebody who's wanting to try to get their voice out for the first time? I mean, if there was some advice that you could give them, what would it be? Well, trying to get your voice out there. And I think the, the motivation is important. Um, what is your motivation for trying to connect with people? And if it's a benevolent motivation where you're trying to get information to people where you think it will benefit them in some way or that you think it is important for them to know, um, you know, it could be opinion-based, but I, I tend to just go more for neutral information myself, let people evaluate 
whether it's important to them or useful to them. Uh, but getting yourself out there, I think, is is pretty much uh, internet based or phone based. It's certainly, it's it's interwebs or etherwebs, as you call. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 about it's about connecting with people through social media these days. And to do that effectively, you have to actually start networking, and that can be a bit of a challenge. But uh, it's about putting yourself out there. Um, connecting with other people and letting them connect with you, being honest and open about yourself, but also you know, being respectful and compassionate with other people because obviously we are a diverse lot humans and we need to have that, that fundamental um, respect for other people. We don't have to agree with everybody. In fact, we shouldn't agree with everybody. It's not the problem in our, our country and, and in the world is not that we disagree with people. It's that somehow we cannot seem to respect the people with whom we disagree. And that causes almost all of our conflict. So getting yourself out there in terms of your voice, whether it's to be an activist or to advocate for some kind of charity event or musical event or artistic event or whatever the case may be is about connecting respectfully with other people. Wow. I- Man, you, you you honestly threw me off with all that, and I, I appreciate everything you said there. So, geez, is there anything else in closing that you would like to say just uh, for whatever reason? Honestly, dude, I think everything you're doing is great. I know we've already touched base on how people can reach you or anything else, but just... Mm-hmm. Would you like to retouch on the things that you're trying to do to get on with the Ellen show and all just to promote the book and everything else? Sure. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for this opportunity, and, and I really appreciate what you're doing with Pi uh, and also the Appalachia show that you have coming up. I mean, it's a, a great way to connect with people um, and shows indeed the power of social media and, and the Internet itself. Uh, but with that, uh, anybody who wants to connect with me, we've already talked a little bit about, you know, you can you can follow me on Facebook. I've already hit my friend's limit, and I can follow you back, and we can stay connected there. On Twitter, I'm at K-R-Y-S-S-D-U-L-A, as well as Instagram, same handle. Uh, and feel free to connect with me there, and you can message me in either of those places. The Get Doula on Ellen hashtag charity effort is one of those things that's hard to predict whether it will or won't happen, but it certainly won't happen if we don't try. So anything you can do in the way of using that hashtag would be greatly appreciated. Um, there are some uh, web portals where you can email the show, uh, Ellen, you know, the Ellen Show, and there's some other kinds of things you can do. But in any event, the, the book itself is Experiments in Life, and it's under the pen name Stephen Sage, and it is apparently a pretty good read. As I said, they're now... <laughs> 25 reviews and they're all but one five star. And I don't think people are just giving me that, that shout out cause they like me. They're not I mean, they, if it, I hope not. <laughs> uh, but I also think not as well because there are substantial reviews. I mean, they're, they're writing paragraphs here. You know, if you didn't like it, I don't think you'd bother. <laughs> I mean, you could just say you didn't like it, but I think if they were just trying to, you know, blow smoke, they wouldn't bother writing the paragraphs. They just hit five star and let it be. Exactly. So there yeah, so hopefully what you're gonna get if you do buy it is a good read. Hopefully an inspirational read on some level. But again, whatever money that I actually after taxes collect myself, which won't be a substantial amount because of how self publishing works, but I guarantee you that every dollar I get, seventy five cents on that dollar will go to a charity of my choice, a worthy cause to help other people. Well, great. And honestly, sir, I thank you one more time for coming on the pie this evening. And, you know, much love to you. I, I hate what's going on with you at the moment, but by the same token, you just still have such a positive attitude about it, and you're still wanting to try to help people. And if in any little way we can put the word out a little bit more, that just warms my heart. So thank you again. Yeah. Well, much love to you, too. I appreciate you helping out. And, and yeah, I, I, as I said before, I'm, I'm an educator, and optimism actually has been shown in the medical and psychological research to be a predictor of po- more positive health outcomes on average. And I, I have been working on that aspect of my own personality, but that's the thing. is like, I'm going to beat this. And and regardless of what happens, I mean, I could, I could crawl into a ball in a fetal position and cry about what's happened to me, but that wouldn't actually help me. In fact, it would ruin what time I have. And so I'm, I'm choosing to stay positive, but I'm also choosing to fight my good fight as hard as I can fight it. 
we'll catch up with you in a little bit, and I encourage everybody to please check out Chris Dula, check out his book, check out his music. That's the K-R-Y-S-S Dula. But, yeah, I'll, I'll put a bunch of stuff down in the commentary for the episode and all that, and take a couple of seconds awesome. and look him up. Awesome. Thank you all. You can kill me, I will not die, not now, not ever, no, never. drink and what I can drink. They want to ban drugs and sex and everything. People want to have a lot of rules, a lot of rules and regulations. But listen up, listen up, Mr. Rules and Regulations. I ain't gonna obey What's up, man? I ain't gonna do what you say. Oh, you can put me in jail, you can kill me, you can execute me, but you can't kill rock and roll, man. Tell you another damn thing, I ain't eating no more fucking McDonald's either. I ain't gonna eat it no more. I ain't gonna eat it because it don't taste good. You know what? McDonald's, you kiss my butt! McDonald's, you kiss my butt. It's a great big hairy butt. Got a dingleberry hanging off my butt. McDonald's, kiss my ass. You know... People say, Mojo, you're always complaining about everything. Why don't you vote in the election? Why don't you become involved in the electoral process? Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Vote for Clinton, Mojo. It's going to make everything nice and new and neat. We got one fool, just as big a fool as the other fool. Ain't nothing changed. Same fools riding around in the black cars. We still riding around on the subway. Riding around in the bus. We riding around in a 1978 you know, 1970 El Torino or some damn thing. Leaking all, we ain't got no money. 
Got to pay taxes. Everything's screwed up. I ain't going to take it no more. I'm going to start an armed insurrection. I'm going to go to the hills of West Virginia, and I'm going to liberate some guns from a National Guard armory. And I'm going to start armed revolt, because at some time, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to disassociate yourself the ties that bind. I'm going to break them ties. I'm going to bust them up. So there I am, standing around a campfire in the hills of West Virginia, and the flames are shooting up high. And I happen to be the head of the armed insurrection of Rebel Alliance. And I'm going to sing our brand new our brand new national anthem that goes something like this. You can't kill me. I will not die. Not now. Not ever. No, never. Wow. I'm going to live a long, long time. My soul is on. Full of holes, but you can't kill the spirit of rock and roll, baby!